Well, good morning. I'm grateful for this opportunity yet another time to share God's word with you today. And my hope and prayer is that God will find this uh, to be a helpful time to use it to, to build our lives, to encourage us, to challenge us to grow in our faith. I pray that it will be a balm to your soul. And know that I'm preaching today as much to myself as to all of you. If you find any of this helpful today, I would hope that you would thank God. Don't thank me. Are you hopeful? What does it mean to be hopeful? Is it mere optimism, cautious or otherwise? Is it some sense that on balance, things are more likely to turn out for the better and not the worse? What things? Your life? Your circumstances? Or maybe you're the opposite of hopeful. Are you a cynic? Are you discouraged? Are you hopeless? Hopeful or hopeless about what? Well, our hopes, those that we express as well as those that we withhold, they can reveal our emotions, our sentiments, our loves, our longings, our priorities. Our hopes can reveal our fears, our perspectives, our desires. And many, but not all of those hopes can be perfectly good and right to desire. Hold all those hopes up and consider them a mirror to our souls. Think now for a moment about all those best hopes that you have for this life that you're living. Those hopes that would yield the most positive, the most wonderful existence that you can imagine. Can you picture a life in which every good dream came true? Or maybe even just a life in which enough of your hopes materialized in all the right ways to deliver a mostly pleasant day to day. It's a good thought, isn't it? But of course, the hard truth is that's not reality. Our lives are a mixed bag. They're a mixed bag of happiness and sorrow, of joy and pain, peace and violence, trust and doubt, plenty and need. What if it only gets worse from here? What if all those best hopes that you have left never come to pass? What if the opposite outcomes actually come true? What if all the good that you have even now is stripped away, leaving you with nothing but hardship and unpleasantness and grief and pain? Would you be overcome by abiding despair and resentment? Would you, in that awful circumstance, wish to die? Would you doubt God's presence in your life? Would you doubt his love? Would you have any hope left? Or would you be hopeless? So, are you hopeful about the trajectory of your life? That your future will be better than your present and your past? What future? The rest of your days? What about beyond the grave? If you dare contemplate it and not cast aside such thoughts, are you hopeful about that? Are you hopeful for eternity? Why or why not? Should you be? Which of your hopes is reliable? Which ones are uncertain? Which hopes will disappoint you? And which will come true? In this intermittent series through the Apostle Peter's first letter, we've been thinking a lot about hope. Last month, Paul Miller helped us rejoice in the living hope that we have amidst trials and suffering, the hope that is for all of those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Andrew Foray led us to think about our hope of holiness as we studied the second half of chapter one. So today we'll revisit those themes of hope as we study the beginning of chapter two. God's word to us, recorded by Peter, in this passage brings to sharp clarity the answer to the question, who should be hopeful? So please open your Bibles to 1 Peter 
I'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. And for those using the Bible provided in the pew, the passage can be found on page 1014, 1014. Text is also printed in your bulletin. So let's read God's word together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want us now to consider more closely verses 6 through 8. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The first point of our sermon today is this. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith and hope. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith and hope. Peter's quoting here from the scriptures, prophecies that are about God's deliverance and of the promised Messiah, about the one who was to come who would save God's people. The first quotation of verse 6 is taken from Isaiah 28, 16. That verse in Isaiah, which we heard read earlier in the service and that's printed in your bulletin, comes in the midst of a rebuke of those who would scoff at God, those who would scoff at the certainty of his justice. God proclaims that he has laid a foundation stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, and God declares that it is a sure foundation one that can be relied upon. Do you see how the words of this prophecy point to Jesus? Zion, of course, is the name for the mount of God's holy city from which his salvation would come. And in his time on earth, Jesus, like the stone, was tested. He was tempted by Satan and withstood it, not once sinning. Jesus is precious in the sight of his father God beloved as his only begotten son. In Isaiah, it's stated that whoever believes in God will not be believing in vain, will not be believing in haste. You see, belief matters. The object of our belief matters. It's consequential. The second quotation of verse 7 is from Psalm 118. We we'll read in Psalm 118, starting in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So this comes in the midst of a festive psalm. It's a psalm that recounts God's deliverance of his people, and it was often recited in times of celebration, including at Passover. 
Many biblical scholars believe that it could have been written upon the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, or perhaps upon completion of the rebuilt city walls. It's also a psalm closely associated with the earthly ministry of Jesus. We read in each of the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the crowds greeting Jesus upon his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, they shouted out words from this psalm, Psalm 118. And we also read in Matthew 23 that Jesus references Psalm 118 in connection with his second coming. The third quotation in verse 8 is from Isaiah chapter 8. So I'll begin reading in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Again, the words from Isaiah chapter 8. So you see, Peter has compiled these three quotations in sequence, and they all use the metaphor of a building stone to draw our attention. It's to accentuate one grand distinction. The single great contrast, the single dividing line in all humanity and across all ages. There are those who have put their trust in God, and there are those who have not. More specifically, there are those who have believed in Jesus as their only hope of salvation, as the cornerstone of their faith, and there are those others who've rejected Jesus, those who've cast him aside. Read in John chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First Peter is a book that Peter wrote principally to Christian believers. In chapter 1, verse 1, just a little before our passage today, he addressed the letter to those who are elect exiles. That is, those who are God's elected believers. Those who are his people that God the Father knew would come to believe in him from the beginning those who the Holy Spirit is in the process of sanctifying, those who are obedient to Jesus Christ by believing in his name and who have been figuratively sprinkled with his blood since he died on the cross as their atoning sacrifice for their sins. This letter is for those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord. All of the following us and you and your references that Peter includes, well, they assume that the reader or the hearer has professed belief. In Jesus. Those who haven't are necessarily excluded from the encouragements that Peter writes. This is clear in our verse 7, our passage today when Peter states, so the honor is for you who believe, for you who believe. Cornerstones are foundational, you see. The cornerstone is placed first, and all the other stones follow. Without a strong and stable cornerstone, the building is weak. It's subject to collapse. Friends, sitting here in the pews today and within the sound of my voice, who or what is your cornerstone? Who or what is most fundamental, most valuable, most precious to you in this life and for the life still to come? Is this letter written to you? Do you count yourself among God's people? If so, what makes you reasonably certain that you are? 
Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, all of the wonderful things that Peter writes about our living hope in this letter, they're true for you. But if that's not you, allow me please to speak to you directly for a moment. Out of my love for you as a fellow human being, someone whose life has intersected with yours, at least for this brief moment in history and time. If you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, we welcome you. There's no place we'd rather you be than right here with us this morning, listening, observing our worship, hopefully learning something about God. And if your mind's been drifting off, now is the time to wake up. Pay attention just for a few minutes. We believe the good news of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that is the most important life-altering message that you will ever hear. And it confronts you today, right now, with the most fundamental questions of your life. Eternity hangs in the balance for you in the way you choose to respond. What is the good news that Peter referenced just above our passage today in chapter 1, verse 25? What is the gospel? This is the gospel. God made you and me and everyone else since the very beginning. He's your creator, and he made you to live in perfect fellowship with him. Like every human who's come before you, like me, like everyone around us, you've chosen to rebel against God, to think, speak, and act in ways that are disobedient to him and which offend his perfect holiness. This is what we call sin. And because of your sin, God would be right and just to condemn you, to judge you for all eternity for rejecting him. But what happened instead is that God chose to offer his mercy. He sent his only son, Jesus, to earth to live as a man. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, and he never sinned. Though we didn't deserve it, and though he was completely innocent, Jesus chose to die on a cross in our place. He accepted the judgment and wrath of God against the sins of all those who would ever repent. That means to turn away from their sins and trust in him for forgiveness. We didn't then, and we still don't deserve God's mercy. It is the freely given gift of his grace to those who believe. If Jesus had stayed dead in the grave, we would be without hope. Instead, on the third day, Jesus physically rose from the dead, having conquered sin and death. This is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 3. It's the basis of our Christian hope. And after appearing to many people following his resurrection, Jesus later ascended to heaven where he sits with God the Father. Christians are promised eternal joy, eternal life with God, while those who reject Jesus as the Savior are justly condemned to an eternity of torment in hell. My non-Christian friend, do you know yourself to ever have done anything wrong in your life? To have thought anything mean or unkind or even evil? To have spoken hurtful or deceptive or vile words? Or do you consider yourself to be perfect? I'm confident that you aren't and that you never will be perfect and that you need to be forgiven for the wrongs that you've committed. There are terrible consequences for your sins even beyond those that you may have already experienced in this life. Are you one of those that the prophets foretold who has cast Jesus aside? Have you rejected him? In your disobedience, in your sin, Jesus confronts you and is your stumbling block. Does his claim of authority as your creator provoke you? Does his demand to be Lord of your life offend you? He created you. You have not created yourself. He lived a perfect life free from sin, and you have not. Have you built your life with all its hopes and dreams on someone or something else? What hollow philosophy of this fallen world have you chosen to listen to instead? What lies masquerading as hope, love, peace, contentment, have deceived you. Maybe you think you just don't need Jesus. 
Please listen to this, friend. Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, he offers you the only hope there is to receive the forgiveness that you desperately need. It's nothing you can earn. Your good deeds, your loving thoughts, your kind words, they can never outweigh those sins that you've already done. Don't even bother trying to just be a better person and hope that's going to be enough. Don't assume you can find God some other way. All the other cornerstones on which you might choose to stake your life, they will crumble and they will fail you. Confess your sins to God and believe in Jesus as your Savior. Join with all those other Christians here today and through the ages who have placed their faith in him alone and have become one of God's people. We've accepted Jesus. We've accepted Jesus as the solid and precious cornerstone of our lives. We base the daily living of our lives on him alone. No one else, nothing less. We do not entrust our lives for all eternity on inferior substitutes. Friend, your flesh is perishable, and you do not know how much time you may have left. Our life here is short. Death in this life may come suddenly and when you least expect it. In chapter 1, verse 24, Peter reminds us all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. If you choose not to believe in Jesus, regardless of what good hopes may come true for you in whatever life you may have remaining, you should and will be hopeless for all that is to come in eternity after your life ends here. What is your response to this message? I invite you, I urge you in love, come to Jesus. Receive God's mercy and be born again into God's family. Make Jesus your cornerstone today. Kids, kids, I want to speak especially to you for a minute. Kids, what do you think is the most important thing to know or to have in your whole life? You think it's to do well in school so you can learn a lot of interesting things, maybe get a good job when you're older? Is it most important to have a lot of friends or to have plenty of money to buy what you want and what you need and to help take care of other people? You think it's most important to have a house to live in so you're protected from the weather? Or maybe enough food to eat so you don't starve? Is that what's most important? Or maybe you think it's really important to have good doctors and medicine to take care of you when you're sick. Or to have loving, kind parents and a great family. You think it's most important to go to church and Sunday school and pray and read the Bible and sing songs to God? You think it's most important to be a good person and to do the right thing? Maybe even most of those things I've just talked about can be good. And many of them are very important in your life. But even more important than all of those things is this. The most important thing of all, kids, it's what you believe about Jesus. That's what Peter is teaching us in the Bible. That's what the Christians around you today know to be true. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe he is God's son and that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of eternal death that you deserve for your sins? Do you believe God forgives you for your sins only because of Jesus and not because you think on the whole you're a pretty good kid, that you're a pretty good person who does the right thing most of the time? Do you believe Jesus miraculously rose again from the dead and that you can have eternal life from God, with God, if you turn from your sins and believe in him? That's the really good news about Jesus. And it's the most important thing of all. Kids, grown-ups too. Your life is either going to be based on Jesus or it's going to be based on some, something or someone else. Build your life upon Jesus. Because all those something and all those someone else's, they're not good enough. Only Jesus is worthy to be the cornerstone. That brings us to our second point today. We'll consider the honor of God's people. The honor of God's people. The beginning of verse 7 indicates honor for those of us who believe. What kind of honor should we anticipate? From whom? It's not likely to be honor in this world. As those who believe in Jesus are often the objects of scorn, of ridicule, 
of persecution from those who have rejected him. From chapter 1, verse 6, we understand the Christians to whom Peter was writing had been grieved by various trials. And we don't know precisely the nature of those trials, but we learn in other sections of this book that these believers have been undergoing some sufferings as a result of their faith, and that still more sufferings were anticipated. The letters addressed to believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all of those were Roman provinces in what is present-day Western and Central Turkey, along the coast of the Aegean and the Black Seas. Many of the believers in that region at that time would have been Gentiles. However, we also know from Acts chapter 2 that there were some number of Jewish Christian believers from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, present at Pentecost. Biblical scholars have concluded that Peter wrote this letter from Rome around 62 to 63 AD, during the reign of the emperor Nero. It was a time of persecution for the church throughout the Roman Empire that resulted in both verbal abuse and discrimination and also physical violence against those early Christians. Some believers were killed for their faith in Jesus. The prospects that they would receive near-term honor were bleak, to state it mildly. We ourselves may know some measure of trial in our own lives, some perhaps of our own doing, but some perhaps due to our profession of Christian faith. And there is certainly no reason to believe persecutions even more severe than those we already may have known aren't yet still to visit us in the days, months, and years that may still come. The context in which those first century Christians had to hope is not so different from our own, is it? Violence and grief, evil and despair plague us, and we continue to witness the ravages of sin in this fallen world. The context in which we hope is, at least in part, one of trials that grieve us. So what about that honor? Peter's looking forward to the future. He's looking forward to the ultimate, culminating vindication of our belief. He's looking ahead to that last day, when Jesus Christ will return and God will render his final judgment on the living and the dead. He's hopeful for that time when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, all those other stones that were favored by those who have rejected Jesus, they'll result in the scoffers just and eternal condemnation. Those who reject Jesus are personally culpable. They've chosen to disobey the word of God, we read. It's a sobering, terrible thought, a sobering, terrible reality. A Christian, be comforted. Be comforted in knowing that God was, is, and will remain who he is, perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly just, and in sovereign command of the universe. Note in verse 8, Peter's indication that those who persistently and finally reject Jesus were destined to do so. Believer in Jesus, be assured in the promise of our God that you will not be put to shame. Now, it might seem all well and good if our hope of Future honor equipped us to endure the trials and disappointments of this life, to get through it with some semblance of our sanity intact, maybe even with some moments of joy and happiness and pleasure along the way. And that may be a good outcome of our hopes that God intends for us to experience, but that is not God's ultimate purpose for the hope that he sustains in us. Let's look now to the beautiful, hopeful words of verses 9 and 10. They capture the reality of our life when Christ is our cornerstone. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that is God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. My Christian brothers and sisters, do you see in these verses how God treasures you, how he treasures us. This is just as God foretold in his promise proclaimed by the prophet Malachi. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. It's Malachi 3.17. Friend, are you downtrodden and discouraged? Are you weak and humbled? The lowliest Christian is a diamond in the rough treasured by God. 
He knows how he will refine and shape you. He can see the glimmer of true faith that foretells you will someday shine to reflect his light, how you will gleam in his radiance. Do you see a glimpse of God's unmerited favor poured out for us in Christ? Do you see the profound kindness and love of God in calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Each of us was alone, wandering, wayward in our sin. And now God in Christ Jesus has adopted us. He invites us to call him father. We're counted individually and known to him among his people. He is king through all eternity and we are his royal priesthood. We also read in chapter one, verse 18 and beyond, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Christian, does your heart not just swell with affection, with, with love, with, with adoration when you hear these words? Jesus was made known, we read, for our sake. He was born and lived and died an undeserved death here on this earth for our sake. His blood is precious and it was shed for us. We, we who have sinned against God more times than we could ever possibly count. We who do not deserve God's mercy and forgiveness and yet have freely received it. We who have gone from being objects of his just wrath to objects of his undeserved love and favor. How could we not then bring him glory by proclaiming his excellencies. That's what we're called to do in verse nine. As we await honor in the future vindication of our faith, it's our distinct privilege. It's our joy as God set apart people were chosen now to live for him, to serve him, to proclaim him to the world. We read that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. It undergoes testing for genuineness so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our living hope into which we've been born again, that's finally intended to result in God's praise, honor, and glory. That is our purpose. That is our meaning in life. It's a worthy purpose. It's a life well spent because God alone is truly worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Our hope should result in an eternity of worship. Christian, have you thought about how your life is not about your glory, but about God's? Do you long for that day when God's glory will be made known worldwide, when all will see him for who he is, when Christ will be exalted as the precious cornerstone? Friend, if you find your heart is cold at times, your heart is lacking desire to worship God as you should, Pray to him. Pray to him and ask him to stir in you a passion for his glory. Far more than the someday eventual honor of vindication for the believer, it's the honor of God's people to proclaim now and forevermore how excellent he is. That brings us to our third and final point this morning. We'll consider what it means to be living stones for God. Living stones for God. Let's reflect a bit more now on the beginning of our passage, verses one through five. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Peter wants us to understand that there are implications for how we live when we've accepted Christ. Those implications cannot be avoided if we are truly one of God's people. In verse 3, Peter invites a question. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if, if, have I tasted that the Lord is good? Peter's not so much encouraging the readers and hearers of the letter to doubt their salvation. 
No, rather, he's written to stir us to contemplation. He wants us to pause and think about it. We have tasted that the Lord is good. And if we would just stop for a moment to think about our life's experiences, to think about the changes that God has brought about in our life by the power of his Holy Spirit since the day we first believed, well, that thought, that recognition of God's goodness, it's overwhelming. It's amazing to us. It's wonderful. Who would we be without God's mercy and love in our lives? What heartache, what wretchedness has God spared us from experiencing by calling us to repent and turn away from our sins? Peter seems to have had the words of Psalm 34 weighing on his heart and mind as he wrote this letter. We heard the first few verses in our call to worship this morning. I'll read the full psalm to you now. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. From verse 4 of our passage, we've come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord. He uses the concept of taking refuge in the Lord. There is significance in the coming. We don't just come to Jesus once. Believe and we're all set. Moment of conversion, nothing else. No, that's not what the life of a true believer looks like. No, we come to him regularly. In whatever remaining days he may choose to gift us on this earth, we come to him seeking and sustaining relationship in daily devotion and service, we have fellowship with God in prayer. Ours is a persistent faith over the long haul. So what does it mean that we are to be living stones? It's a striking image. The stones in nature have no life on their own. Yet that is what we who believe in Jesus are called in verse 5. We are his new temple. Not a physical building where God's presence would abide, but rather we're together being built into a spiritual house. His spirit now dwells in each believer individually and collectively. And we're being built up. By whom? By God, by his Holy Spirit, with his help, with his intentionality, with his purpose, in conformity with his will and fulfilling his promises to his people. Because we cannot change by ourselves through our own mere efforts. He gives us the life. He makes us the living stones. With Jesus, the old system of temple sacrifices to symbolize the repentance of the people is gone. For the blood of mere animals was always insufficient to atone for our sins. Rather, Christ's sacrifice and his shed blood once and for all on the cross accomplished what those rituals never could. So now, 
we need no longer approach God in a temple through a priest. The curtain of the temple was torn in two upon Jesus' death, and now God abides in his people. So we are the people of God, as we read in verse 5, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In words that we heard read earlier from his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul explains and affirms, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Romans 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it look like to be living stones, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? Well, this letter gives us some direction. In chapter 1, Peter exhorts us, prepare our minds for action, be sober-minded, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, Peter writes, you also be holy in all your conduct. In chapter 1, verse 22, Peter urges believers, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter instructs us, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The so at the beginning of verse 1 harkens back to chapter 1, verse 23 our intentional expulsion of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, it's an outworking. It's an outworking of our being born again in Christ as God's word lives and abides within us. When we've tasted the goodness of the Lord, when his word truly lives and abides within us, we will think and speak and act differently. Not yet perfectly, not yet consistently, we're still being sanctified, that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit more and more each day to be like Christ. But evidently, the Christian's life looks evidently different. We'll show some fruits of the Spirit in our lives, like those we read about in Galatians 5. You've heard them many times before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we'll be struggling. We'll be struggling and persevering against the sins that tempt us most. Again, in Galatians 5, we'll be characterized less and less by these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. We who are God's people should be inclined less toward malice and deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And we should be mortified. We should be disgusted when we find these things still lingering on occasion in our lives. We turn to God anew in repentance and faith, knowing that we receive his forgiveness in Christ. My Christian brothers and sisters, let's continue to fight against the persistent sin that so easily entangles us. Our God is holy, and he's called us to pursue holiness for our good and for his glory. And we remain hopeful because we are assured that God will complete in us the work that he has already begun and that we who have trusted Christ will never be lost once counted among his people. Now, if you cannot detect any fruit of the Spirit's work in your life, well, then you ought to examine yourself to discern whether you truly believe in Christ, whether you've actually turned in repentance from your sin and accepted his sacrifice on your behalf whether you've placed Jesus as the cornerstone of your faith 
Are you deceived? The Apostle James warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Friend, does your faith show any signs of life? Finally, let's note Peter's exhortation to us who believe in Jesus that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter isn't implying that these believers are immature in their faith, comparing them to newborn infants. No, instead, what he wants us to do is to perceive the strong and urgent desire a Christian should have to be fed and to grow. Fed not with the food of this world, but rather with the life-sustaining word of the Lord. It should be our craving to learn more about God, to grow deeper in our relationship with him, to desire to honor him increasingly each day in our lives, to serve him faithfully, to proclaim him to the world. How are we to know how to do that? What will God use to accomplish his will and fulfill that desire? He molds and shapes us through his word. Peter acknowledges a few verses before in chapter one, the living and abiding word of God. And that's using the word logos in the Greek. And he echoes that intentionally now in verse two of chapter two. He uses the Greek word logikos in describing the spiritual milk. He's quoted Isaiah 40 in verses 24 to 25 of the prior chapter. And now Peter contrasts the frailty of human flesh with the enduring power of God's word. He says in verse 25 of chapter one, this word is the good news that was preached to you. We Christians are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Recall Jesus proclaimed as we read in John six, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's God's power that guards us and helps us to persevere in belief unto the end. He will provide the sustenance that we need through his word. We don't have to worry as Christians that it's all up to us to keep on believing, to keep on hoping, to keep on enduring the trials and temptations of this life. We're weak on our own. We falter and we fade. We give in, we doubt, we grow weary. But take heart. We have God's power to sustain our hope. It doesn't all depend on us. We are not alone in the struggle. And what about when we don't feel that craving? What about when we feel like we're losing those daily battles against our sin? What about those times when our trials seem so daunting, never-ending, hopeless, and we linger at the edge of a pit of despair? Oh, friend, in those moments, turn to the Lord in prayer. Seek his comfort and reassurance. Open your Bible and read his wonderful promises to you. Be reminded of his love and his care for you. And seek out your brother or sister in Christ to walk through that season with you. Did you notice the plurality in our passage this morning? All that we've considered, it's not just about you as an individual. It's about us. We are members of a people redeemed and brought together by the living God of the universe. We are members of one body. We are together members of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have Christ in common. We have the same uniting, rock-solid, certain cornerstone. We are living stones together with all the believers, yes. But perhaps it's helpful to think of ourselves as adjacent to one another. We're living stones next to each other. We're near each other in the spiritual house that God is building. God, in the mysteries and kindness of his providence to us, he saw fit to bring us, you and me, the members of Franconia Baptist Church, together here in this place, at this time in history, to know one another and to be known. He's intersected our lives of faith to care for one another, to encourage and challenge one another, to long for that spiritual milk, to stir each other, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord to give good counsel, to faithfully admonish and entreat as occasion may require, to rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy 
to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Church, may we heed the exhortation that we read in Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who should be hopeful? Only those who have placed faith in Christ Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of sins. Those are those who have true lasting hope for this life and for all eternity. Church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be hopeful. With Jesus as our precious cornerstone, we have most certainly, most amazingly, most wonderfully reasons to be hopeful. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Praise and glory be to God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, we come before you now not because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. We were not a people, and yet you chose to adopt us as your own. Who are we that you would treasure us? And yet you have poured out your forgiveness and love to us in Christ. We exalt you for being our great savior, for being the cornerstone of our faith and the sure and certain reason for our hope. We thank you for delivering us from our sins and for your resurrection that holds out to us a glorious promise of an eternity with you. Help us, please. Help us cling to that great hope when we face trials in this life to trust in you and to not despair. Teach and empower us by your Holy Spirit to live as those who are your living stones, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. Rid us of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And as we leave this place and through our days, continue to speak the truth of your word to us, O Lord. Renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We ask in Jesus' name that you do these things for our good, for your eternal glory. Amen.